Buddy, thank you for tuning in. Uh, this is one of those big days for me. I am talking to Dr. Brett Contreras, finally. Uh, he has been one of those dream names on my list. And finally, I managed to get him on. So I'm super stoked. And I will be try to be organic in this episode. And instead of asking him about glutes, which is, well, I, I'm assuming still most of your episodes or podcast interviews, Brett, I will try to ask you about everything that is related to muscle hypertrophy and geek out on that topic. Not that nobody has asked you about those topics before, but um, perhaps less so than about glutes. So how does that sound? <laughs> Sounds great to me. Uh, I think the, <clears throat> the last three podcasts I've done have just been all about glutes. So great. This will be very welcome. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Cool. So um, with that, uh, just as a kind of warm up question, how is life treating you these days, Brett? And um, have you gotten used to the fact that you're a PhD yet? <laughs> well, it's funny you called me Dr. Brett Contreras and I never... You know, I'm not a research professor. I got my PhD just because you know, I wanted the challenge. I wanted to get it, and I wanted to be a better researcher. And most important, I was curious about my topic. Um, so that's not – I'm not used to the term doctor. <laughs> not many people call me that. Uh, so thank you for that. But life is very good. I moved to San Diego. I lived in Phoenix, Arizona my whole life, and then just moved out here four months ago, and I live right by the beach. And I just built a gym. So, yes, life is great. Awesome. Great. Well, um, hopefully I will be uh, – this podcast episode will not be a disruption in the good treatment that you're getting from life these days. <laughs> so, yeah, I will try to do it justice. So, um, yeah, I guess let's just uh, jump into our topic of discussion today, which is hypertrophy in general. And then we will see how deep we manage to dive. And I guess a softball that I'd like to throw at you at – but the first question is what when you look or when you think about how you think about hypertrophy and building muscle these days, are there a lot of concepts and, and things that you think or believe about that topic that you could never have imagined maybe five, ten years ago that you would eventually think about this? Oh, absolutely. Um, <clears throat> so when I got in the game, you know, or, or should I say when I started learning about fitness information, I was, uh, you know, I read muscle magazines. That's all we had. You know, I'm 41 years old. So when I started reading about fitness magazines, it's like early 90s. You had, uh, you only had like muscle and fitness and Ironman and flex and muscular development. Um, and that's how we learned. We didn't have the internet yet. Then the internet came out and eventually websites started cropping up and it, it vastly improved, uh, you know, our ability to learn. And then over time, I obviously, you know, became better at, uh, as a scientist and learned PubMed and how to read journal articles. But in the beginning, it was just talking to bodybuilders and, or sorry, just talking to like lifters at the gym and, and colleagues and reading magazines. So back then, you had to go heavy and you had to go to failure. You know, a lot of the information out there was that the only rep that triggers growth is the very last rep that you can barely squeak out. And then even going past failure was beneficial. Well, I have now learned through, and, and when this, uh, Stu Phillips was the main researcher who started coming out saying heavyweights are not necessary for hypertrophy. Yeah, they're important if you want to get strong and get maximal strength. But if you just want muscle and physique changes, you don't have to lift heavy. I remember when he started saying that, and my friend Brad Schoenfeld and I were talking 
he's I would consider Brad the leading researcher in hypertrophy. And Brad and I would talk about it, and we'd be like, oh, I don't know about this. I mean, I respect Stu Phillips, but this is just hard to believe. We, 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 so what did we do? We conducted our own study, and our results, you know, mirrored what Stu Phillips was finding. So that's when you really believe something, when you conduct your own study. You know, when someone else does it, you can be skeptical. Eh, I don't know how, I don't know how they conducted it. I don't know their methods were solid, but when you do your own, you're like, okay, now I'm very convinced. So that's, so I still, and Brad and I still kind of think if you want your maximum potential hypertrophy, you should do a combination of rep ranges just because they probably target different mechanisms. However, that would be just wanting that extra few percent. You can get, I mean, either equal hypertrophy or like 95% of it by just doing whatever rep range you want and doing enough volume in it. Well, I should say it's hard to get enough volume in with heavy, heavy lifting. Like if you're just doing singles and triples and doubles. But if you do like, you know, the sweet spot is probably 8 to 12 reps. But even if you did just 20 rep sets, you could get all the hypertrophy you wanted as long as you train hard and go close to failure. So that I've changed my mind on. You don't. So if you're a lifter who doesn't like going heavy, you can just go high reps and you're fine. If, as long as your goal is hypertrophy. The other thing is training to failure. I've, I, uh, I, I, I don't think it's necessary to achieve optimum strength or, or hypertrophy. And it's actually counterproductive if you're going for power. So, uh, we have all these uh, advanced techniques like drop sets and force negatives and all these things that we do to try to extend the set past failure, assuming that it's greater for hypertrophy. But really, the the research on even training to failure itself is uh, is is uh, lackluster in terms of needing that for full strength and hypertrophy. So uh, you don't have to train to failure. You can train a you know, as long as you get enough volume in, you can train a few reps shy of failure. But uh, uh, the, on this, on the other hand, you shouldn't fear going to failure. Some experts out there are telling people you should never go to failure. And it just depends. There are a lot of factors. I mean, if you're doing like a prone rear delt raise or a hammer curl, you're, you're, you're not, you don't need to fear going to failure. But if you're deadlifting twice a week, you know, and you should, you should not go to failure on, on every set. Um, uh, especially if it lets your if your you your form degrades a little bit, so that's a whole topic in and of itself. But those are two scenarios where I believed one thing and then over time changed my mind due to research. Right, um, and and I'm glad you brought up the the heavy lifting topic because in this episode I really want to dig into some of these notions. You know, we hear a lot of things. For example. You can build good size or you can progress using, for example, machines or dumbbells or, or cables, but it's not as good as, for example, using barbells. And in this episode, I want to dig into these questions like, is it really not as good as using barbells or, you know, leg presses? Sure. Or leg extensions? Sure, it's fine, but it's not as good as high bar squats. But is it really not as good? You know, so uh, and I, I think you will be a really cool guest to ask about you about these topics. So I guess first just... Um, and again, one of these basic questions, how, how would you, in a general sense, uh, define a simple kind of winner recipe for hypertrophy? And just to illustrate what I mean, my definition would be something along the lines of do enough volume for your given needs. So do enough total training 
and do this in a progressive manner over time so that it's more and more challenging. And that, according to my definition, that, that should cover most of the things that most people should know about how to build muscle. Would you say that's a good definition or would you add other things? Yeah, uh, that's, I mean, if you have to just uh, summarize it in a couple sentences, then, but I would say with, with the exercise, with, with exercises that, uh, it's hard to say <laughs> that, you know, heavily work the muscles you want to build. Um, and, and with that, it's hard to define that because you know, we can use EMG, but that's come under fire lately, mainly by my intern, Andrew Vygotsky, my good mm-hmm. friend. He's published a review paper and two letters, to the editor questioning the ability of electromyography to predict both motor unit recruitment and hypertrophy. But I, I, it's funny. He and I always joke around. I'm like, uh, I argue with Brad. I argue with Andrew. That's what we do when we're on the phone. And I'm like, Andrew, so you think they're not related. So obviously they're related. How can you grow a muscle significantly without activating it? And he's like, yeah, but we don't know what that level is. Like, we don't know what, how, you know, what level of muscle activation or how much greater do you have to have with one exercise and another till it leads to a significantly different um, hypertrophic result? And that's true. But I always tell him, okay, I'm going to publish a you know proof of principle study mm-hmm. <laughs> giving people cab raises and barbell curls or something like that. And I'm going to have electrodes on the calves and the biceps. And I'm going to have them do a, a one session where I measure muscle activation. And I'll show that the calf raises activated the calves but not the biceps and the you know curls activate the biceps and not the calves and i'll have 20 subjects in each will serve as their own control they'll do you know they'll work the the right bicep and the left calf and then we'll 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 do a training study carried out over like you know six weeks or eight weeks or something and then retest them and look at hypertrophy and i could show that yes calf raises grew the calves and curls grew the biceps <laughs> and not and not vice versa. So yes, activation is correlated with hypertrophy or, or whatever. Obviously, activation matters, but there are reasons why you can't just say, oh, this has higher EMG. First of all, there's problems with EM, the EMG recording itself, especially with fatigue. Um, and and, and uh, especially a new study came out looking at EMG throughout the range of motion and complicating matters further but second there's factors other than activation that influence hypertrophy for example range of motion the time of the contract like the time not i don't want to say time under tension but the 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 velocity of the lift and how how long it takes to carry it out for example plyometrics don't build muscle like squats do um even though it's a similar movement pattern um the the plyos are too fast for all the cross bridges to form and to get adequate tension on the muscle. So even though you have high EMG with plyometrics and high activation, you don't have the same growth stimulus. So there's more factors than just EMG, but uh, but y- y- to go back to your definition, y- you can't say, because your, your definition included volume and progressive overload, but what if you were performing, you know, L flies and, you know, like cable L flies for the rotator cuff and whatever i'm just trying to think of a bunch of rehab exercises <laughs> push up pluses and scapular wall slides and you know like uh uh, uh like wimpy i'm just trying to think of wimpy little rehab exercises of course you could do volume for those and progressive overload and you won't grow muscular all over so you got to 
have exercises that combine to work the whole body or just the muscles that you work, and they've got to be effective exercises. But what you asked before is very interesting. What you alluded to before you asked this question, you said, for example, is is our high bar squats better than leg presses, or is that all? You know, is that can can we can we say that? So that would be two parts to that question. I feel like you need to address number one is like a sh short term view, and the number and then and then we need to take a long term perspective. So <clears throat> there are people who just always seem to hurt themselves from squats, and 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 it's because. The exercises that are often the best exercises, like squats and deadlifts and bench press and military press and bent over rows, these exercises can are typically the most dangerous because you care about your strength the most. Yeah. You don't go to you don't go to sleep thinking about how you're gonna you're you're like hoping that you get a PR on seated rows or or like leg extensions. You know, you 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 you, start, you think about your squat session that week and you. You're hoping you get it, and sometimes strength just isn't there, and so you have to, you know, you have to, <clears throat> you, you have to have discipline as a lifter to say, I just don't have it today. I'm going to cut back, but it's hard because if you want it so bad, sometimes you can just be stubborn and grind through it, and uh, and and you know, use worse form, you know, use more momentum or lean more or round more or whatever, <clears throat> and so for that reason, it's the most dangerous. But some bodies. And this is both your anatomy, your your skeletal anatomy, and your anthropometry, and then also your soft tissue strength. That's very genetic as well. So if you have, you know, if you say you're very tall and you have to lean, say you have long femurs and you have to lean forward more when you squat, and then you also have weak soft tissue like you know your discs or your whatever ligaments, tendons, things like that are are uh, you know, they're weaker than other people's, then you might hurt yourself quite often with squats. Um, conversely, if you're shorter with long, sorry, shorter with short femurs and very robust soft tissue strength, then you can be indestructible. You know, maybe you can squat three days a week for your whole life and be just fine. So the person, the, the, the latter person, the, the person we talked about with the great soft tissue strength and the good structure for squatting, his best exercise will likely be the squats the squat for his quads and uh, uh, uh but the other lifter the taller guy with weak soft tissue he should not stick to squats he can throw them in here and there but he shouldn't that shouldn't be the lift that he prioritizes for progressive overload because pain inhibits muscle activation and so if you're in pain you're not going to achieve optimal growth if you have to warm up for like 30 minutes just to be ready to do an exercise that's your body's telling you it's probably not the right lift for you so in that case he could find a different exercise maybe it's leg press Maybe it's, you know, maybe it's leg press with a feet a little bit higher on the platform. Maybe it's some other lift that doesn't, isn't as problematic for him. So that's the long-term perspective. But the short-term perspective is, you know, okay, how, what, how do we say barbell squats are better than Smith machine squats and better than leg press and things like that? Or, or leg extensions are better than the rectus femoris for squat, than squats. Um, well, we typically use EMG for that, mm -hmm. and that I already addressed. I, I do think EMG can be used to predict hypertrophy, but it's got to be under uh, under two with two caveats. One, they have to be performed under similar conditions. For example, you can't have a scenario where you're doing thirty rep leg extensions and comparing it to five rep squats, or you're doing one exercise to failure and one not. So you, you would want 
and they and, and they need to be similar range of motion as well. Uh, so if you do leg extensions through a full range of motion, and you do, and, and it's a certain tempo, and you also do squats through a full range of motion with a certain tempo, uh, and it's or the same tempo, and you're doing ten reps on both of them to failure or close to failure, then yes, you can compare the two in terms of EMG and 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 use them to predict muscle growth. And leg extensions will you will see superior vastus vastis activation with the squat, but superior rectus femoris activation with the leg extension. So then you could conclude that the, you know, if you want optimum quadriceps hypertrophy, you need to do both of those exercises because the squats for the vastes and then uh, leg extensions for the rec fem. But ideally, you'd have training studies looking at that. And we typically use EMG, but it's, it's even better if you have like functional MRI, things like that. But every, this is the thing about research. Everything has limitations and drawbacks and weaknesses. So I, t I talked about the weaknesses with EMG. There are limitations of functional MRI, limitations with literally every tool we have, ultrasound, MRI, DEXA, um, force plates, you know, motion capture, everything has limitations. And, and even musculoskeletal modeling, uh, that's like high-level biomechanics stuff where you use like, you know, inverse dynamics and and uh, and to carry out musculoskeletal modeling, that has huge uh, assumptions that have to be made that can, you know, influence the outcomes big time. So at every level, uh, there's there's limitations. So I, you don't just want to rely on just pure research because a lot of times there isn't there isn't there aren't studies for a certain thing, or there's only a couple studies and they have weaknesses. So that you also want to look at anecdotes. The problem with anecdotes is people are often wrong. <laughs> but if if everything jibes and you got the lifters saying this, the coaches and trainers saying this, the research pointing to this, then and tradition pointing to this, then maybe it's safe to say that it's a, it's legit. But as we talked about earlier, everyone thought heavy lifting was superior for growing muscles, and the first study ever conducted on it, this this Campos study, it it, it was the very first study on the subject. It showed a huge advantage for heavy lifting. The problem was there's the last like 22 studies have not shown that that was a fluke and there's some for some reason that study maybe it was you know uh, bias on the on the researchers part or some sort of um, influence by the from the researchers you know and the, and the practitioners or or some other reason that wasn't duplicated so that's why no, I, I always think of knowledge as being like science as being science is the truth. Science is, is how stuff really works out there, and uh, and it's our job to try to figure it out. But we're humans; our brains are flawed. We have all sorts of you know biases and cognitive dissonance, and we're going to screw up the interpretation of the data. But if you do the study correctly, and then the data is pure, we just need to know how to properly you know, how to place that data and how to how to understand it best and know its limitations. So uh, I think I did a good job of answering that question. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, that was very well said. Even uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson couldn't have said it better uh, at the end. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so uh, on, on the topic of, of exercises, um, do you think that there are inherent traits to an exercise, you know, given that all other things are equal. So how much it beats up your connective tissue is the same. 
Uh, it fulfills the basic functions of a, of a muscle. So in the case of the biceps, it flexes your elbow. In the case of the quads, it flexes the knee. Um, so given you all these things... extends the knee. Quadriceps extends the knee. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Excuse me. Yeah, yeah. There you go. Or <laughs> 20 minutes in, I'm already embarrassing myself. <laughs> <laughs> so all these things are being equal. Would there be any kind of difference um, between say, free weight exercises versus machines or barbells versus dumbbells in favor of one or the other? Because these are things, or for example, another good example, closed kinetic chain exercises versus open kinetic chain exercises. Because these are things that, um, you know, are often touted very profound benefits in favor of one or the other. This is a great question. God, you're asking such good questions. I'm so happy I did this podcast. So, all right. Thank you. You typically hear, you know, Barbell closed chain exercise are the ultimate for hypertrophy. Um, and, and, and what about machines? What about dumbbells? Well, here's the problem with a lot of research. It'll show that, okay, you know, group A did squats and group B did leg extensions. And the, people, the group A had superior quadriceps hypertrophy. So free weights are superior to machines. Okay, well, that's because you compared squats to leg extensions. What if you compared squats uh, to to lever squats you know lever machine squats or something like that so that's the problem there, there's no study on that now there are studies looking at like free weights versus smith machine but i have doubts about that for two reasons number one i know there's there's several studies looking at you know smith machine versus free weights and they always show an advantage for free weights but i almost think like a lot of times you see people perform Smith machine squats and they put their feet way out in front. But you can actually do a Smith machine squat with your feet directly under, like <clears throat> when you when you walk out a barbell, you're leaning slightly. If you were standing straight up, the barbell would f- fall backwards, you know? You have to have a slight lean. <clears throat> and then your feet are, are kind of like, you know, the bar is like centered over the feet. With a Smith machine, people put their feet out in front and do it more of like a hack squat. If you try to carry out a Smith machine squat exactly like a barbell squat, you can very closely replicate the movement. And to be technical, let's say I had, you know, like transducers on the on the you know front and back of the barbell, and I was measuring the how much you actually use the Smith machine, like how much of the force is vertical versus how much you're pushing forwards or backwards. You could perform it with almost all vertical force, where you're not even using the assistance of the Smith machine that much. And therefore, it'd be just like a, a very similar to a barbell squat, but maybe you're a little more confident. You know, maybe maybe it's even better for your, your, your muscle growth. Or maybe not. Maybe you got higher EMG because of that. But I think the form, the technique changes when you perform. And, and the researchers might not know how to, how to duplicate the form and make sure they're carrying the exercise out in the same manner. I mean, think of this. All right. And, and, and so, sorry, uh, there's two, I, I mentioned there's two reasons why I doubt it. The second reason is because I've performed experiments on myself and a couple other people. Not enough to publish a study, but just, you know, pilot con- collected pilot data. And I have the same muscle activity with barbell squats, lever squats, Smith machine squats. They're all very similar. So they're like eerily similar. So I don't believe that they're, I'd like, that's another scenario where it's like I'm skeptical of the research. I'd like to carry out a study myself. And that's probably a lot of the listeners, you know, can relate. They're like, oh, man, I, I know there's a study, but I don't know about this. Yeah. It's okay to remain on the fence about something till more research emerges. Just don't be, 
you just just know how to how to you know I, I, a lot of times I say well I'm gonna kind of keep that study in the back of my pocket and I'm not gonna change everything just yet I'm I'm gonna experiment on myself and keep an eye out uh, keep an eye open for future research and if more studies come out then yeah I'm gonna believe it to a greater degree and you know and especially if it works with myself maybe I'll start giving it to clients and if it works for them then I change my mind sometimes there are degrees of confidence you have in in, in stuff um, but think about this with with think about the like unstable to stable continuum where you have on one end you have un, like unstable surface training like squatting on wobbly boards and uh, you know, standing on unstable like discs and and you know balls and uh, inflatable balls and different things like that. And on the other side, you have machines, okay? Because machines are the most stable. Well, strength coaches will scoff at unstable surface training for being too unstable, but then they'll scoff at machines for being too stable. So, is it the case that barbells are just the right amount of stability? There's some sweet spot that maximizes motor unit recruitment and muscle growth, or is it the case that maybe you should have variety, or maybe maybe the case that let's say we talk about bench press, we have one group do just bench press, and we have say they do you know nine sets of bench press per week, but another group does three sets of bench press, three sets of Smith machine or machine or like hammer strength bench press and three sets of dumbbell bench press. Okay? The, the, so the, the, the one group's doing just barbell, the other group's doing dumbbell, which is a little more unstable, and then barbell and then Smith machine or hammer strength, which is more stable. And then you look at the hypertrophy not just in one location. You have MRI that looks at, you know, you look at hypertrophy along the entire pectoral muscle you look at clavicular head and sternal head and all the fibers could it be the case that the latter group doing the more variety would experience more hypertrophy uh in the whole muscle but maybe the study only looked at one spot and concluded oh they they have the same hypertrophy so you don't need variety you can just do bench barbell bench or 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 whatever it's a wash between them so choose whatever you like that's a, a limitation of a lot of studies because you know uh, muscle hypertrophy is sometimes region specific. You don't get equal growth everywhere. Some exercise might be better suited for, you know, maybe with the dumbbell bench press, you go a little bit deeper, get a little bigger stretch. And range of motion has been shown to lead to greater hypertrophy, possibly through the greater stretch and possibly through the muscle damage experience through that greater stretch. Um, so maybe it has region specific uh, properties to its growth. Um, so we don't know, we need more, like most things, we need more research on the topic, but I'm a fan of variety uh, for, for, for different reasons. Number one, it might be ideal for hypertrophy, um, probably is, but second, it's also more fun. When you enjoy your training more, you're going to train more often and train for longer. You know, with my clients, I'm always trying to get them to train for 20 years. I want to, or the, the rest of their life, I don't just want them to you know, lift, lift weights with me for a year and then quit training. I want to teach them how to be lifelong lifters and lifelong exercisers, exercisers so they can stay fit for life. Right. Um, that was very well said. And, and so to pose you a hypothetical question, I believe I even emailed you this one. So let's say 
you would have to make a bet for, I don't know, $5 million. And we, we would simulate a several year study within 10 minutes somehow. So some kind of a computer simulation. And one group, or let's say a group of identical twins, one group would be performing barbell bench presses for the chest. And the other group would be performing standing one arm cable fly, similar relative relative intensity for that exercise. And that would be the only choice of exercises for the pecs in those two groups. Um, would you expect better gains in the bench press group? So it's bench press versus standing cable fly, one arm fly or bilateral? Uh, yeah, let's make it bilateral to take out the unilateral, bilateral uh, yep. component. Okay. Okay, so cable pec fly or, or, or cable crossover or a pec tech? In this scenario, I'm imagining it would be, yeah, so cable cr crossover, yeah. Okay, so I'm going to give you a short answer and then a long answer. Um, <clears throat> I would probably go with the bench press. Um, just because it is so effective at, you know, at building muscle, but, but it's, I don't think you'd see like, you know, if you ask the, all the bros and all the coaches, they'd say you'd get, by they'd say you'd get like double the growth with bench press. But, um, I want to mention a couple things here. Number one, people will point out that you'd get greater hormonal release with the bench press because it's more of a compound movement. And that is true. You would see a greater hormonal release, like more testosterone and growth hormone, things like that. But that wouldn't matter for the rest of the muscles in the body. That only matters locally, and that's not the end-all, be-all with what makes muscles grow. Um, it's not just the hormonal release. So they would point that out, but I would not agree with that rationale. They would also point out that you use greater loads with the bench press. But in that case, then would the... like. That it's not always about what exercise uses greater load. A lot of times you can have a mechanical advantage and use huge loads on an exercise, but it doesn't stress the muscle a lot. A lot you know, and that's just simple biomechanics. A lot of people don't understand a lot of the way we move and stabilize is through, it's kind of like a seesaw. You have a very large moment arm for the resistance and a very short moment arm for the muscles, and they have to balance out in the case of stabilizing or exceed in the case of dynamic movement. And so the muscle has to create so much force in order to um, overcome the, the, the torque from the resistance. And so a lot of, you know, the, the, the muscular demands comes from the, the resistance moment arm. So I could do a lateral raise with heavy weight or with light. And this is great that I'm bringing up the lateral raise because there's actually a, a a predictive, uh, um, uh, like a modeling study on this, which you just talked about. So this is a perfect scenario. I can do a lateral raise. I can do 50-pound lateral raises, and I'm six foot four. I'm a tall guy. I can do 50-pound lateral raises, but they're they're not very strict. I use a lot of momentum, and I'll bend my elbows more, and I'll heave the weight up. And I could do 10 reps, but there's a lot of body English on it. I can also do 20-pound lateral raises where my elbows are straighter, I use more internal rotation, keep my elbows higher. You know, with the with the 50-pounders, my wrists end up being higher than my elbows, and I'm using external rotation, uh, uh, you know. And then w whereas with the 20-pounders, I'll, I'll lead with my elbows, be stricter with my form. My elbows are straighter, and I come further out. So uh, the, the dumbbells are further out from my body. And they probably lead to very similar levels of muscle activation. 20-pound lateralizes versus 50 based on what what I do, you know, what I've 
uh, you know, based on my form and everything. So, um, so anyway, I think that you can you can get carried away with loading, thinking loading is all that matters, but it's not. And here's here's what's ironic: there was a study several years back that modeled hypertrophy, and it used this modeling study to predict that heavy lateral raises with a little bit of English on them, a little bit of momentum, were superior to lighter lateral raises for muscle growth. And I, I laugh at that because we don't even know what, we aren't even sure about the mechanisms of muscle hypertrophy. You know, we, we think it's due to mechanical tension, metabolic stress, and muscle damage, but there are more and more researchers doubting muscle damage as a mechanism, doubting metabolic stress as a mechanism. And so we don't know exactly what causes it. We aren't sure. You've got Stu Phillips thinking it's mostly motor unit recruitment. Uh, other guys saying it's mostly mechanical tension. You know, uh, Brad and I thinking that there's muscle damage, metabolic stress, but we're open-minded to change our mind. The problem, it's really hard to show these things because to carry out, you ultimately have to carry out training studies, and there's no way of of getting no none of one of the, it's always a combination of the mechanisms. You, how are you going to get mechanical tension without muscle damage or mechanical tension without metabolic stress? So you can't just have, I'm going to have this program, which is all mechanical tension, this program, which is all metabolic stress, this program, which is all muscle damage, and compare the hypertrophic results. You won't be able to see it. You know, you can't, you can't do that because you can't eliminate those. But you could, what you could do is change the variables around to say, okay, we know that this causes more muscle damage when I go to longer lengths and accentuate the negative phase. So I'm going to try that. And then we know that you get more metabolic stress when you do higher reps and shorter rest times and toy around with the exercises, selection, and stuff like that. But now you're changing variables. So how do you know that it was, say you do get greater growth with one, one method versus the other. Was it due to the metabolic stress or the muscle damage? Or was it due to the fact that you tweaked tempo and exercise selection and volume and things like that? So it's really, really hard. We got to get better on like a, 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 on a micro level at a analyzing these things and first understanding the mechanisms better and then being able to create protocols that can help us predict. So I don't think it's going to be answered anytime soon. But since we can't even come up with the mechanisms that accurately predict hypertrophy, how can you create a model that, that predicts it? You can't. That's what I said earlier. Models rely on assumptions. And once you and the problem is most people aren't smart enough to look into the models themselves and look at the assumptions that are made. Well, I remember when I read that study years ago, I just assumed that the model was legit. And I even used that paper to reference that it's okay to go heavy sometimes and use a little bit of momentum. Now that I'm a better scientist and I know more, I look at that study and I'm like, okay, <laughs> there's a lot of assumptions being made. You know, we don't know that. We don't know that unless we carry out a training study and then we can be more confident. And the problem with training studies is they're really hard to carry out. So, you know, strength and conditioning research is not heavily funded. It's not, it's like a fringe benefit to lift weights. It's not considered like, the stuff that gets funded is cancer research and heart research and things like that, stuff that's killing people. So while we may all, may all think, well, yeah, we should be, these people should all be strength training, we typically, you know, don't get funding for healthy subjects looking to maximize hypertrophy or strength or power. So, um, and so uh, we don't have these studies that have 500 subjects, a typical training study might have like 20 or 30 subjects in it. And so we don't have the statistical power that we need and it's really hard to carry them out. So, you know, say you do a, an EMG study or a force plate study, you might only need 
13 subjects or something like that, and they can all come in one weekend. And you can crank out this study in one week, collect all the data in one weekend, and then, you know, analyze it and write up the paper. However, when you do a training study, they, you need to meet, you know, familiarize them, test them, get pre-testing done. Then you have to carry out, say, an eight-week study where they come two, three times a week to lift weights. And then you have to post-test them. And it's cumbersome. you got to have strength coaches there to supervise the workouts. And you have to have, uh, you know, and you end up having dropouts, which is highly annoying. Typically, like the last two weeks, people will drop out for the lamest reason. So, um, so it's harder to, it's, so these train, we don't have enough training. We need so many more training studies. And because of that, there's a lot of, it's like the wild, wild west out there. Coaches with their own opinion as to what, what causes muscle growth, what's the best for strength, what's the best for uh, power, what's the best for function. You know, look at functional training. Everyone's saying, oh, this is functional and this is not functional. It's based on, purely based on opinion, based on what that coach thinks is logical in his brain. He's not looking at training studies. He's using his own logic that makes sense to him. Great. Yeah, I, I find this uh, exercise selection and this kind of the science behind it, I find it a really fascinating um, subject. And it's also very practical because, um, you know, a lot of guys... Well, real quick, I don't think I did a great... I just thought back. I don't think I... I I think you would get higher growth with the bench press, but it would be very similar. And I could make an argument. I always say to, to, to know a topic well, you want to be able to make a good argument for and against either scenario. So, you know, Abel, you and I could be up on a on a podium debating, and you could say, hey, Brett, you got to choose the bench press. And I could, if I, let's say I wasn't trying to be scientific, I was just trying to win, I could come at you with all those reasons, you know, yeah. heavier loads and uh but, but i didn't adequately explain the loading people assume heavier loads all right they'll say these are higher forces but they're using ground reaction forces or external forces we're, the muscle hypertrophy is concerned with muscular forces tension on the muscle mechanical stress that's what we're looking for so you can have a heavy load but it doesn't require a, a lot of muscular uh you know muscle forces Muscle force does not equal ground reaction force. So, but anyway, I'd still throw that at you. I'd say heavier loads, greater hormonal output. I'd reference tradition. I'd say all oh, the bodybuilders love the bench press. And I'd throw all these things at you. And then if you were astute, you could counter all those for the reasons I've already mentioned. And, uh, and you could say, well, Brett, you know, <clears throat> the, uh, the, the, the fly targets, better targets the pecs, so you're not getting... Yes, the bench press will cause greater growth, you know, overall because it works the, the the anterior shoulders and the triceps very well, but the 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 standing cable crossover, you know, more effectively targets the pecs, so so you're not you know getting fatigue. You're not you're that's going to be the failure point. The, the the pecs failing is when you stop the exercise, and so you're you can you can better target and and you know. Uh, what I would say for that argument is you could carry out more volume. So if, if, if people equated volume, then yeah, that's, but I would say that's not fair though, because how many sets of bench press can you do a week compared to flies? You could do more sets of flies and still recover from them. So that's why I don't like in a lot of studies, they, they, um, they uh, equate volume. And I'm like, sometimes you don't want to equate volume. For example, if you're comparing a powerlifting study versus a bodybuilding study and you equate the volume, Brad and I, I'm, ugh, I'm so sorry. I'm on some stupid email chain <laughs> or text chain. There's two of them going, one with Alan and Brad. <laughs> and, 
and the other is with my family. I'm jealous of your email chains. Yeah, we're going to do a seminar in San Diego here. But uh, anyway, I don't know how to disable it. Um, so uh, I'm trying to do that. If, if the listeners know that anytime you ping, it's Brad or Ellen, then <laughs> they will be forgiving. Okay. Um, anyway, oh, yes, found it. No sound effects now. Okay. <sighs> I hate being that annoying guy. Anyway, um, so... Uh, sometimes so so Brad did a Brad for his master's thesis I believe or maybe no it was a doctoral thesis sorry he did a study where he looked he compared bodybuilding versus powerlifting and showed that uh, you got way better um, strength gains with powerlifting but the hypertrophy gains were the same but here's the problem the the bodybuilding group finished the workouts in 20 minutes and the the powerlifting group took an hour. The other thing is that the – here's another on a side, going off on a tangent. The powerlifting group was beat to crap. At the end of the six or eight weeks, I can't remember how long it was, they, their joints were killing them. And they were like, oh, man, I, I feel like I need to take a deload. I'm going to hurt myself. Whereas the bodybuilding group felt fine. And that's what we're seeing with these training studies. We do high reps, and the, the group that does high reps feels nauseous and puke, like wants to puke when they do 20 to 30 reps to failure. When you really go to failure with 20 to 40 reps, you feel like puking. So they have nausea, and then the heavy group has joint discomfort. So that's why I like the eight to, the whole 8 to 12 or eight, 6 to 15 or whatever you want to call it is a sweet spot for hypertrophy, not just because it does a good job of activating, you know, of, of activate, getting enough time under tension and activating the muscles highly to a high degree. Because, yes, when you go heavier, you have higher muscle activation, but you need you don't get as many reps in. And you, it's hard to get as much volume in. You have to do more and more sets, and then you have heavier joint loading. So it, that's why I like the. So it's kind of like a lot of what we do is validating what the bros do, what the bodybuilders do, and then a lot of it's not. It's dispelling what they do. So in that scenario, I like the whole whatever you say, eight to twelve or six to fifteen, as the kind of sweet spot for muscular growth. But you can adapt to doing heavier loads and being able to tolerate them. You can also adapt to doing lighter loads to failure you get better at um you know at not the nausea goes away and uh you, you know but it's it, that's an interesting observation nonetheless cool excellent uh brett do you have some time to touch on progression uh for a little bit or um am i being abusive of your time already nope nope let's talk about progressive overload um <clears throat> well we always think of the, the story we always use is like milo of croton or whatever where this you know guy picked up and carried a, a bull, a baby calf or whatever around its head and walked walked around with it, and then as the as the calf or the bull, whatever it was, as it grew, it it got harder and harder. But he was doing it every day, so he you know he was able to adapt to it. And by the time the the you know bull grew to full size, Milo was jacked as hell because he was his muscles were you know, progressively overloaded and he, they adapted and got bigger and stronger to where he could now, and it was very subtle, so he could now carry this thing around. And it's a nice story, but obviously you could never carry, how the hell would you get this bull around your shoulders? <laughs> it's a, just a, a fable. You couldn't carry a cow around and like the cow would just let you. And number two, it just doesn't work that way in this linear fashion. Every lifter who's been lifting a long time knows that Progress is wave, wave, wavy. You have times where you get stronger, times where you plateau, and times when you get weaker. Sometimes one lift goes up, another lift goes down. 
Sometimes you still, I remember I stayed plateaued on my bench press for like five or six years. I didn't go up. Now, granted, I've been lifting for 26 years. And then after a while, you quit going for PRs on certain lifts. Like, I'm not trying to set PRs on my lateral raises anymore. I know I could get the 50-pounders to where I could do them for 20 reps, but my form wouldn't be as strict, and it would start hurting my joints, you know? A lot of the single-joint upper body exercises, they're, they're very effective, but they can load your joints a lot. Like, barbell curls can hurt my forearms. Um, lateral raises can start hurting my elbows. Um, same with, like, tri a lot of the tricep extension exercises can hurt, start hurting my elbows and they just don't feel good, uh, you know. That goes for a lot of them. So I like higher reps with those. But you get to a point where after you've been lifting enough years, you're like, I'm not trying to set PRs on these smaller lifts. I'm just going for quality. So I like thinking of lifting as quantity and quality. So, yeah, like I always say there's like two tracks for muscle hypertrophy, the, the progressive overload tract and the mind-muscle connection tract. And I could make an argument for both cases. I always tell people, okay, Let's say you're a male, and you're a 200-pound male, and you get to a point where you can bench press 350, squat 450, and deadlift 550. You're going to be pretty jacked. You're, you're going to be a pretty muscular dude in order to carry those out. Um, and that's probably true. But there's also the guys you see at the gym who aren't very strong, but they, you know, they're doing, like, tons of, like, just, just you know, they'll they'll do a lot of isolation movements and really squeeze the muscle, and you see them, they, they're you're like, wow. I mean, I've seen bodybuilders train, and I'm like, I use just as much weight as they do, but they're way bigger, but they're doing it differently than I am. I'm using everything I got. They're squeezing and controlling it, and they have a better mind muscle connection. So both roads can lead to hypertrophy. You want to be using both of them. I, I, mean, I remember when I did an 815-pound hip thrust, I felt it all on my hamstrings because, you know, I'm going for max load. When you go for the heaviest weight possible, a lot of times you don't feel it in the intended muscle. You feel it all over. You're not trying to target a muscle. You're trying to get the weight up. So uh, you, just because you lift more weight does not mean you're using a certain muscle more. Remember we talked about muscle force does not equal external force or the resistance torque is different from Maybe there's a lot of ways to carry out a to create a, a requisite joint torque, uh, or or to lift a load. You can have a lot of different combinations of muscle activations to achieve that. So you could activate one muscle and not another, and you can see this with heavier loading. I've done this with with hip thrusts. I've seen it with bench press, where you can go he heavier and heavier, but a muscle won't. A certain muscle peaks like like peaks out at at, uh, at at far from maximal loading. So, like, in the case of a hip thrust, a lot of times I've had subjects who, once they get above, like, 50, 60% of one rep max, their glute activation doesn't go up, but other muscles go up. I've seen it with bench press, too, where pec activation peaks out at, like, 60 or 70%, but then when you go heavier and heavier, you know, it's like, it's like you know, you see tricep and shoulder activation go up. That's Now, I'm just talking about individuals here. Well, there's research on that topic. Um, my colleague Andrew Vygotsky published one on Good Mornings. We have data on hip thrust. There's studies on bench press, um, looking at loading, heavier loading. and uh, But I'm talking about individuals, not averages. Research reports averages, and I'm talking about individuals. So I have some individuals who the heavier they go, the more their glutes activate with, with hip thrust. Others who peak out at 50 to 60% of one rep max. So I train those people differently. I give heavier loads to the one person and lighter loads to the and more sets to the other per, the other people. Um, and that we need to learn more about. We need to know that better and 
because they're different types of responders in my opinion right well um i i mean just as how it usually goes i had like three times as many questions as what i had time to ask you but maybe be a just a good kind of uh, overarching kind of um colloquial question here would be would there be any kind of uh, unconventional progression methods that you like to use with your clients that are different than what guys normally do, which is just increase weight from session to session? Yes. Um, I, I remember writing an article on this years ago on progressive overload, and I came up with all these different, there's like, I don't know, I can't remember, maybe I came up with 10 different ways to progressively overload. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, I, saw that. I uh, you know, so you have, you can progress in weight, going up in weight. The funny thing is, I, <laughs> I mean, I've like, People email me and they're like, I don't get it, Brett. I'm trying to go up just five pounds a week and I've stalled out. And I'm like, you do know five pounds a week is like 260 pounds in a year. That will not happen. You know, in 10 years, you'd be lifting 2,600 more pounds. It does not work that way. Even when people go, I'm only trying to do one more rep. You do realize that's 52 reps in a year. If you could get one more chin up every month even, you know, in two years, you'd be getting 24 extra chin-up reps. It just doesn't happen that way. So sometimes you can't just go up on in reps or weight. There's some methods I do, like like I used to call it the three-set combined method, where um, the t- like you look at their total reps on the three sets. So say one week you get, you're doing like dumbbell bench press, and you do, say you got the 100-pound dumbbells, and you get 10, and then 8, and then 7. Well, you got 25 total reps. So if over the course of a month you can increase that to 30 reps, then that's progressive overload. So maybe you get it to where you can do 10, 10, 10 or 12, 10, 8 or something, you know. Um, And so that's one method I like. The other method, sometimes I just look at, you know, time, density, you know, if you're, if we can decrease the rest time. So someone's getting, you know, three sets of five squats or deadlifts, three sets of five deadlifts with, you know, 405 pounds, but it takes them 15 minutes and you get that down to where they can do that in eight minutes. That's progressive overload. So there's a lot of different ways um, that, you know, you can overload the muscles. And lately I've been doing more drop sets. I think trainers get bored, lifters get bored. You got to keep sprucing things up and trying different things. But, uh, you know, drop set, there's some good research on drop sets lately. So it's like, yeah, you, you might use the same weight for the top set, but then drop down two times and, and you end up getting this one ex- crazy extended set. Um, that's not true progressive overload, but you are, you are overloading the muscle. And if you look at, like, say you look at your, <clears throat> you can overload that way on the drop set. So I'll tell the client, like, okay, <clears throat> say they do a hip thrust and they're good. They get, say I have a female client and she got 365 for five, 315 for 5 and 225 for 20. That was her last uh, drop drop set. So <clears throat> triple drop set. Um then then say the next time I might go, okay, I want you going for six, six and twenty. And then maybe it's eight, eight and twenty or something, you know? <clears throat> so yeah, it's 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 a it's still progressive overload, it's just a different type. There's so many ways to do things. So many good ways to design programs and strength and conditioning. It's it, it, <clears throat> You can do full body training. You can do upper, lower splits. You can do push pull. You can do body part splits. You can do so many different ways can be effective. But in general, you want to work a muscle like twice a week. It's hard to work every muscle twice a week, though. 
That's why I like specializing in the muscles that you're trying to build the most. For women, it tends to be glutes and delts. For men, it's everything. So it's hard for men to work every muscle twice a week and do it justice. But, uh, you know, that's why I, I'm a fan of total body training. <clears throat> but body part splits are, are great. What am I going to tell every bodybuilder they're doing it wrong? You know, obviously it works well. Uh, there are just certain things you want to appreciate, uh, like you mentioned, uh, performing ample volume and then progressively overloading over time while still getting that mind-muscle connection, performing the best exercises that work best for your body and, uh, and you know, feeling, feeling the muscle doing the job some of the time. Not when you're going heavy, but I like ending the workout with, you know, like, you know, exercise that kind of burn out that you feel the muscle, you feel a burn, you get a pump. Um, I think soreness the next day is overrated. You don't want to be too sore, but it's nice to feel a little bit of soreness. Um, but yeah, I think I think we've done a good job so far of summarizing the main points of hypertrophy. And if you want, uh, we can do another podcast down the road and you can get to all the other questions that you've wanted to ask. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, that's that's what I just I was I just wanted to say that usually I end my podcast with a question of uh, is there anything I definitely should have asked you but I didn't. But in this case, I know I have a bunch of those, <laughs> so um, may, maybe some other day I can hunt you down again for a follow follow up. Yep, I'd be it'd be a pleasure. Yeah, it would be it would be great. Um, but Brett, you dropped a lot of golden nuggets here, so uh, I guess my last question will be just uh, which resources and places would you like people to go to to check out your work. Well, I think my Instagram is the coolest. I, I don't do a lot of Facebook and Twitter lately. I just mostly Instagram. Um, so that's Instagram.com slash Brett Contreras one. Now, if you can't spell my name or remember my name, I'm known as the glute guy. You could just type in the glute guy onto Google. And I think my website will probably be the first thing that pops up <clears throat> from my website. You can find all my social media channels. I'm on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and then, uh, and then you can subscribe to my newsletter as well, but I don't spam people. I only send out like usually like one a month and it's just links to stuff that I've done. I'm not trying to one of those people who send out 50 million newsletters a day. Um, so, yeah, that's how you can find me. Hey, guys, I just want to tell you again that your inputs for this podcast will help it grow more than anything and your requests, ideas and comments will contribute to awesome content going live on this channel and podcast more than anything. So if you want to contribute, the best thing you can do is to go on Facebook and look up sustainable self-development. You'll find both the page and the Facebook group that is dedicated to discussions and ideas being thrown around. Go there and note down your comments about what kinds of topics or guests you want to be featured on this podcast and YouTube channel in the future. Just keep in mind the general theme of this podcast and my YouTube channel, which is to help people becoming their best selves in terms of lifestyle as it pertains to fitness and general personal development. This podcast is really dedicated to self-improvement, both physically and mentally. So keep that in mind. So thanks again for tuning in and see you next time.